Well, why don't you stand up? We're going to read our text again. Matthew chapter 18, verse 12 through 20. We are in talking about the ministry of restoration. Some people call it the ministry of reconciliation. Um, Jesus said to them, he said, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go, 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, for your instruction. It is for us to learn and to heed, to exercise, to practice. And so I pray, Lord, that your instruction would seed itself nicely in our minds, and that you would give us the conviction and the courage to live according to it, Lord. Grant us grace this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right, please be seated. I am going to try and finish our uh, section today. As I said, uh, we are in this discussion, this study of the ministry of restoration, Reconciliation. Paul is the one that got us onto it in Galatians chapter 6 1. Brothers, if any among you fall into sin, you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness and, um, and try to restore them. And it just so happens that the Bible's full of the ministry of restoration. Uh, last time I checked, God was really into the ministry of restoration. God became flesh dwelt among us to die for us that he might reconcile us to himself. And uh, we are called to reproduce that uh, in the church. All right. So this ministry of restoration, it is the believer's responsibility to at least make an attempt to restore a sinning believer to repentance that they might be received back into the fellowship with Christ and with his people. We've also discussed what sort of sins would justify uh, such a confrontation, uh, which are those sins or failures that fall into three categories. I think, again, here they are. When people fail in essential theology, the truths about God, uh, they fail in essential doctrine. That's truths in and about God's word. Or they fail in essential ethics, in biblical morality. Now, We've, we've emphasized uh, what is essential, lest we become arbitrators of what is and uh, what is not uh, a worthy sin to confront someone for, and also for the sake of avoiding what is petty. Um, people are petty, and, and people are also, uh, they like vengeance. And so if they're hurt, well, that justifies a confrontation. Uh, not, not always. 
Okay. Um, what is essential to God uh, in these three categories must be uh, what determines a justifiable confrontation. We all get our feelings hurt, but that doesn't mean that we can just confront people over hurt feelings. Uh, I think our culture would love to prosecute for all those such crimes, but that's not the standard of God's church. Our standard always lies within the scriptures. We also ask the question, um, okay, so I have a, uh, a biblically justifiable reason to confront this person. How exactly do I go about doing that? Uh, to which we responded, it depends. It depends. It depends on the sinner, and it depends on what the sin might be. And uh, the, the, the question is necessary because there's just not a cookie-cutter approach in every regard. The scriptures also provide uh, different categories on particular sinners, different sinners. And hear that as again. There are sins of the laity, that is those who do not hold an office in the church. There are sins of the leadership, we might say the officers, uh, divisive people, and then also heretics or false teachers. Okay? So not just categories of sins, but categories of sinners. There's a lot of us, aren't there? A lot of sinners in this room. Yeah, I know that our culture, again, they, they would love uh, for everyone to be treated equally, but that is not biblical. Okay? Uh, treating people according to the way God has designed things, that's actually what is equitable and just. Okay? All right. Um, so far, we have in our study our responsibility to try and restore a sinning believer. You are not responsible for their repentance. So try to get that weight off your shoulder. It's the same weight that I refuse to carry on my shoulders when I'm evangelizing. I do not carry the weight of, of them coming to faith. Um, I'm a messenger, I preach the gospel, I sow seed. Um, if they don't like it, uh, they're rejecting the best offer in the universe, okay? And I'll be winsome, I'll be persuasive, I can, I'll use my apologetics, I'll use everything that I got. Um, but at the end of the day, when they say no, that's up to them. And, uh, and what did Jesus say? Knock the dust off your feet, move on. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Uh, categories of sins, sinners. And then, of course, last week we were able to discuss uh, one whopping verse, verse 15 uh, of Matthew 18, which really is the backbone of Jesus' discussion for the ministry of restoration in the context of the sins of the laity. Because when we look at uh, how we apply the protocol with a heretic and uh, the leadership changes, okay? The backbone, I would say, the some of the structure is still there, but it's not identical. There's some crossover, but not the same. And we're gonna get to that. We're gonna uh, inform the body about how to rebuke a leader. Some of you want to do that every Sunday and hear my preaching. Last week I gave you um, the following alliteration as an outline for Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Here it is again. Uh, so it's in verse 15. Jesus instructs us that when we become conscious of a believer's sin, now emphasize a believer's sin because we cannot apply this protocol to those who are outside, Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, this was within the community of believers. So when we become conscious of somebody's sin, we must confront them, being mindful to do it confidentially. And if he or she concedes to our rebuke and correction 
through repentance. Jesus says that we have won our brother or sister. And then, if we've won them, like the shepherd who found the one sheep that had gone astray, we should celebrate. We should celebrate that one among us has been spared from the trap of the enemy. Amen? Yeah. Now, last week, uh, a few different people approached me about the, the issue here of confidentiality, wondering why it would be a problem to share it with their spouse. Um, and I thought, well, if a few people are wondering, uh, a whole bunch of people are probably wondering. So I want to address it a little bit further. Uh, I gave a few reasons last week why we should not, but let me give a couple more reasons. Um, and mind you, when I give you reasons like this, um, it's probably because I've experienced some of it and seen it happen uh, where there's been a lack of confidentiality. Okay. Uh, one of the problems that I've noticed with sharing the sins of others, depending on who they are, is the effect it has on them, the person that you've shared it with. Okay? It's not always received by those people uh, with humility or uh, a heart of restoration, but with self-righteousness, anger, and bitterness. Uh, raise your hand if you think those are virtues. Okay? For example, if the husband of one of my wife's closest friends had committed adultery, and I shared that with my wife, it may not be repentance and restoration that she wants from her friend's husband. It might be blood. It might be retribution and vengeance. So instead of having a desire for the husband to repent, she's offended for her friend's sake. And I get it. I get it. I mean, my first response if some of my close friends in the church had committed adultery on their wife, the first thing I'd want to do is lay hands on them. Okay? That's just it's my initial response. And I might get a shot in before I gain control of myself. But it'd feel really good, wouldn't it? <laughs> Being honest with you. <laughs> yeah. The information that I share with my wife in that circumstance, um, it's a disservice to her sanctity. Okay. Uh, same thing if I share the information with a close friend. If I share the sins of others with my close friend, I can accidentally cause them to stumble into self-righteousness, to pride, to bitterness, and even hatred. If what I share causes them to think less of that person rather than uh, their heart being broken, uh, that, they're, that they're in sin, I've actually caused the one that I've told to stumble. Doesn't Jesus have a prohibition against throwing a stumbling block in front of people. Yeah. You see, by keeping the sin confidential at this point in Jesus' protocol, I'm not just promoting love for the sinner and protecting friendship, as Proverbs 17:9 says. I'm also protecting my wife and everyone else from sinning against the sinner. I'm protecting them. Okay. By sharing the information indiscriminately, I'm throwing a stumbling block in front of the person I've shared the information with. I have no right at this point to share it and my wife and my closest friend have no right to hear it by virtue of their relationship with me. I don't understand that logic, by the way. By virtue of Shandy being my wife, she is not privy to all of your information. Now, some of you come to me for some very private matters, very private matters. Are you okay with me sharing all of that with my wife? <laughs> I like it. If you're going to share the sins of others with other people, 
for perspective or counsel. Uh, Omit names. Omit enough details to where they're not playing Sherlock Holmes and they're walking away going, (laughs) I know who they're talking about. And I uh, struggle with the sin of gossip. (laughs) Great, great. There's another issue that is worthy of addressing. Um, I was contacted by a friend once uh, for wisdom regarding a a situation of adultery. Uh, The wife of his friend contacted him because she didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to handle it. And, of course, adultery puts a spouse in a very difficult position. And she discovered that her husband was having a sexual relationship with another woman, to which my friend, when he heard it, he was just deeply, deeply grieved. It was one of his best friends. She found out by looking at his phone some texts that she had read, a conversation between her husband and this woman, and it made things very apparent. So my friend, he contacted me and gave me no names, but he shared with me he was seeking counsel. And so to make a long story short, I told him that Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, they must be honored because his friend was a professing believer. We have no option at this point but to go through with this. His friend had to be confronted, and so he did, only to discover that his friend was joking with another male friend about some other incident. The text didn't have all of the context. The rest of the context was in conversation in person with the other guy. To his wife, though, it appeared that he was being unfaithful when it was nothing. Now, imagine a similar situation where a wife called a friend out of desperation for counsel over her husband's infidelity, and that friend, who was supposed to conceal the matter as a counselor and confidant, instead shared the matter, names and everything, with his wife or friend, who then shared it with others, who then shared it with others, who then shared it with others, and it festered and spread for weeks until her husband's reputation, position, friendships were destroyed. Keep it to yourself. Keep it to yourself. You guys, we're seeing this right now with the media. They don't care about the facts. They want that out there. But whether they want it or not, they put it out there. And people's lives are being destroyed right now. And by the time the damage is done, it's too late to catch up with it. It's too late to fix it in the community. It's too late to fix it at work. There are jobs where people can lose their job if they're unfaithful to their wife, okay? And some people should lose their jobs for being unfaithful to their wife, okay? So be careful. Someone's sins must be confirmed. Keep it to yourself. Go and confront the sinner between you and him alone. Again, he who conceals a transgression seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates friends. Proverbs 17, 9. Okay, let's move on to verse 16, where the sinning believer fails to concede with rebuke and correction. Verse 16, Jesus says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Jesus says, If he will not hear you. To hear means to heed to concede. The sinning believer will not heed the call to confess his sin and repent. So for example, young people, please listen. You've gotten the impression that your friend is having sex with his girlfriend, and so you go to them humbly to inquire. Maybe it sounds something like this. Hey, Jim, between me and you, I was headed to work early this morning at 5 a.m., and I saw you leaving Michelle's house. 
I'm not accusing you of anything. It just doesn't look good. Paul says, abstain even from the appearances of evil. But I need to ask, are you two having sex? That's tough, isn't it? That's tough. To which your friend might say, and I've heard this said before, hey, it's not like we're a couple children. Exactly. Exactly. It's not like we don't have a commitment to each other. And besides, what I do with Michelle is none of your business. I've heard that many times. The proper biblical response would be something like this. Hey, Jim, actually it is my business because of what Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 15. And what the Word says in 1 Corinthians 5, and again in in 1 Corinthians 6, and 2 Corinthians 12, and Galatians 5, and Ephesians 5, and Colossians 3, and 1 Timothy 1, and Hebrews 13, 4. There are others that make it my business. Would you like those as well? Brother, we're Christians. And Jesus is Lord of the church. It is my business. Jim, you guys are not married, but if you repent and you remain pure, you guys can do this in a way that honors God and his word. You can. If Jim concedes, great. We should receive him. And we should restore him to the fellowship with celebration. But we're in verse 16, and so Jim says something like this. I love Michelle, and she loves me. You you have no right to take that from us. Who do you think you are? This is my favorite one. I thought you were my friend. To which you would say, Jim, I I am your friend, and that's exactly why I've come to you. Jim, listen, Jesus said that no fornicator, none, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Apart from a covenant with this woman between you and God and before his covenant people, you are condemning yourself for pleasure. You're willing to forfeit eternity. Please stop this. God will forgive you. He will grant you repentance. But because we're in verse 16, Jim refuses. You've told him his fault, and you've called him to repentance, but he's obstinate. And for that reason, Jesus' protocol changes. It changes. Now it's time, according to Jesus' instruction, to disclose their sin to one or two trustworthy people. One or two. One or two only. Who are mature enough not to blab it to the world. Okay? and who are mature enough not to stumble over Jim's transgression. You know, maybe somebody that's used to hearing about people's sins and has a reputation of keeping it secret. How's that? Uh, I have a handful of people in the church here that they're used to hearing the confession of sin. And to them, it's like, nothing God can't forgive. Nothing God can't heal. That's who we're looking for. People that are motivated by love to restore Jim to repentance and fellowship So understand again, the only people that should know about Jim's sin from you are those who will be joining you for the second confrontation with Jim, okay? Then, with one or two others, you are to confront him in a spirit of humility. The spirit does not change, amen? It does not change. The motive doesn't change. And by bringing others along, we are communicating the gravity of the situation along with establishing a base of witnesses to verify the truth of the matter, so that the whole context comes together. There's no confusion about what's happened. Fornication is, is, is the sin or something else. And to strengthen this in the text here, Jesus quotes a principle from the law of Moses it's a, as a wise safeguard to protect someone in case they're innocent. He's most likely quoting a Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, but by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. So if disciplinary action is to be taken, 
There must be more than one witness to someone's sin. More. Too many innocent people have been punished on the basis of one person's testimony, right? And in some cases, you round up the wrong witnesses and you have the same thing, right? As Jesus knows very well. And so Jesus says that a single witness is not sufficient testimony to discipline anyone. So when we gather our witnesses, we want to make sure that they're people of integrity. Amen? We want to make sure that that individual will not seek vengeance. So it's nice to get people that are not emotionally connected to those people. All right? So be wise in your selection. Uh, if you don't know people like that, uh, you know, take a risk and come talk to me. Okay? And I'll give you another person. Uh, I always get brought in anyway. But you don't have to include me. It's not something I enjoy. All right? Uh, I trust there's a lot of people here that can do this. So a quick question for you. What do you do, or what do we do, if someone comes to us confessing the sins of Jim? What do you do? Well, I try to make it a habit of stopping them and saying, hold on a sec, have you confronted Jim yet? You get it, right? Because if you haven't, you got no business telling me. Yeah. The question is not rude. Uh, you are actually protecting that person from sinning against Jim and from disobeying Jesus, who gave the instruction here in Matthew 18. Okay? If they don't understand what you mean or they're, they're not familiar with Jesus' instruction, guess what you get to do? Got your Bible? Let's turn to Matthew 18. Okay? Well, I actually was involved in a situation here at church where somebody was, we were going to remove them and they just left. It's usually don't get to the last step of Matthew 18. People usually leave. And an individual in the church came to me and berating me, yelling at me, and telling me how disgusting I am for what I did. And I said, you know, I just actually did what Jesus commanded me to do. And, and he accused me of lying and said that Jesus gave no such instruction. And I said, I would love to sit down with you and talk to you about it. And he, well, let's do it right now. I got to see it right now. And so we opened it up, and the de-escalation occurred. Because I'm not going to feel bad about doing what my Lord commands me to do. Amen? Okay. So people need disciples, and that's part of the reason we're here looking closer at the ministry of restoration. We want to equip the church. So back to our study. Now, after the second confrontation has occurred, of course, we, if they concede and repent, we go back to the protocol of verse 15. We receive them and we rejoice, we celebrate. But what if they remain obstinate? Verse 17, and if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Oh, no wonder they leave if they're not willing to repent. Uh, this is hard, this is hard. Tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. First thing I want you to notice is how all of this has become a family affair without repentance. Because one person is affecting and potentially, eventually, will start infecting the rest of the body. Okay? Like I said, when you stub your toe, the whole body goes to its rescue, right? Except the friend that I have, he, he can't feel his feet, so he, he has to slam his hand in the door to, to, to get the same effect. But you guys get it, right? You get it. It becomes a family affair. At this point, the entire body's informed and called to participate because of this malady that is now becoming a danger to everyone's safety. And if the unrepentant will not heed the majority okay, of the three witnesses, it's brought to the supermajority. And if being confronted by the church proves sufficient, we go back to verse 15. We receive, we celebrate. Amen? But 
If they remain obstinate, Jesus commands, he says, let them be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. That, that is, treat them as you would a heathen or a tax collector. So how did a first century Jew treat a heathen and a tax collector? How did they do that? Well, in the context of first century Israel, a heathen, which is a, a pagan, an idol worshiper, uh, they were considered unclean by the Jewish people. They were, they were repulsed by them. The things that they worshiped, the immoral behavior that they had, the food that they ate, the way that they kept themselves. Uh, pagans were disgusting to the Jews, and so the Jews avoided them. That's how they treated them. And a tax collector, well, you know, they were Jews, uh, but they were traitors to the nation of Israel, working for the enemy who was oppressing them. They were working for Rome, collecting taxes from their own people, but the real problem was that they would collect far more taxes than what Rome required, and the excess would go into their pockets, which made them wealthy at the expense of their own people. How do you think the Jews liked those Jews? That's right, they despised them. So when Jesus tells them to treat the unrepentant like a heathen and a tax collector, he's commanding his people not to have fellowship with those people. The unrepentant, Jesus is saying, they are to be excluded the historical term is excommunication. I don't like the term. I guess the result is the same. There's also disfellowship. That's, that's a euphemism. It just softens it up a little bit. The word that was used uh, by the Jewish community was aposunagogos. That's a mouthful. Or we, we abbreviate it to asynagogue, the alpha privative meaning without, to be removed from the synagogue, to be expelled, which forbade them to participate in the life of, of the religious congregation, but there was more. They were shunned in the community, and they were shunned by their family as well. That's huge. Life could become very difficult in that situation. So the Jews were frightened by aposunagogos. You remember the Pharisees were, were threatening the people that if they confessed Christ, if they confessed Jesus, they would be expelled from the synagogue, and then they would suffer religious, social, and economic consequences. Now, of course, for the Pharisees, it was more about punishing people um, for liking Jesus more than they liked them. Uh, they had weaponized their jealousy with their position, their power, with lies, false witnesses. They just wanted to get rid of him. And that should be a warning to us. Amen? We are, that is not below us. It's not. It's not. It's depending on how hurt you are, how angry you are, now, anyway, God commands us to expel unrepentant persons from the fellowship of the church for the sins we've discussed. But we have to remember, it's a very dangerous thing to do when people are motivated by envy, hatred, or retribution. It puts us all in danger. Okay? We have to do it right. We have to be careful. We're talking about doing it by verifying people's sins with multiple witnesses before we take action. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, Every fact must be established. Amen? And you would like that same due process, right? Okay. All right. Now, I didn't mention aposunagogos because we want to destroy people's lives. That may be true of first century Israel. That's not what we want. Even after we expel someone, we're praying for them. We're seeking their repentance. Okay? Um, I've had people that have left the church because of the same thing and... Um, it came to the, the, the last step of Matthew 18, and they left. And then, you know, a year later, they approached me in the, the community like we're homeboys. 
and I say, have you repented? Have you repented? And if they say, you know, well, I said, then I'm not going to talk to you. I love you enough that I'm going to obey Jesus because you still need to repent. Time is not going to take care of this problem. Okay, it has to be done. We must shun them, Jesus says, until there's repentance. Paul affirms this, uh, if you're taking notes, in Romans chapter 16, verse 17 through 18, when there, where there was a failure in essential doctrine. He has the church, the whole church shunned them. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, uh, there's moral failure there. We're going to talk about that later um, to, to get them out of the church. Uh, in the same chapter, in verse 9 through 13, he talks about the same action should be taken in, in failure in regard to theology. Again, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, uh, discipline is applied in an ethical situation, in extreme laziness. Wow, didn't want to be lazy around Paul. Apparently, work is essential because work was created before sin entered the world. God created work. It's essential. It's, a part of, it's, a, it's an expression of the image of God in us. It's essential. The Holy Spirit prescribes us in 1 Timothy 1.20 for a failure in essential doctrine, and then again for bad conduct in 1 Timothy 6.5. There are more. Okay, Jesus commands that the unrepentant believer be excluded from the fellowship of the church because that person, you guys understand, they have no regard for God. They have no regard for his righteousness, and now they're becoming a danger to the church. And as Paul, we'll, we'll look at it later, Paul teaches that when a, a person is excluded because of unrepentant sin, it removes them from God's protection and from the benefits of the church. It's a dangerous world out there. Okay? He says, I've delivered so-and-so over to Satan that they would learn not to blaspheme. That's a fun section to talk about. Yeah. And this is the limit of our authority as the church on earth, is exclusion. It's not execution, as uh, Israel could practice and we don't want that, right? We don't want that kind of power. <clears throat> I don't. If you want it, go someplace else. It's too much for me. Um, another thing that is potentially revealed through a situation where someone has to be excluded is the person's salvation, whether or not they're saved. If someone will not repent of their sin after the, the, the whole church has gotten involved, at this level of discipline, it's a good indication the person was never saved. Now, I'm sure that uh, there may be some people here today, this morning, uh, I know people uh, outside of this church, I know entire ministries and churches that object to shunning the unrepentant and say, why exclude them if they're not hurting anyone? First, Jesus said to. That's really, that's all we need to say. Amen? Amen. If he's Lord of the church, his commands, they're final. But second, permitting unrepentant sin in essential matters, it actually does hurt. It's a cancer. It's not benign. Hebrews 12, 14 through 15 says, you know, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Okay? Look at the instance with like Achan in the Old Testament. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament, their crimes were private, weren't they? They were seemingly innocent. As far as we know, the congregation was completely oblivious to their sin. The Holy Spirit actually had to reveal it to the leadership. And, and, but God, he was so concerned about their secret sin that he deprived them of life in order to spare the congregation, to 
spare them. In Acts 5, it says that great fear fell upon the whole church as a result. The point is, is that, that God is to be revered. He's to be reverenced, Acts 5.11. Paul says that this is actually God's intent, his, his intended effect as a result of church discipline in 1 Timothy 5.20. You guys, is it a healthy thing for people to be afraid to sin? Amen. Read Proverbs. <laughs> Paul said that the sin of fornication that was present in the Corinthian church, he said, realize it's like leaven. It, it, it spreads through the whole lump. And the idea is the church is the lump. And one person brings their sin into the lump like leaven, and then it spreads and corrupts the whole thing. 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 7. Where unrepentant sin is tolerated in the congregation, it teaches others that there is no consequences for sin. To do nothing about sin is to make light of sin. But listen, when you do that, it makes light of Christ's sacrifice. You see, from God's perspective, sin is so offensive and dangerous that he gave his only begotten son. We can't forget that. It's not for us to make light of what Christ gave his life for. All right, real quick. Something that Jesus does not mention in this scenario is if, if someone does something that is not only immoral, but is also illegal. He doesn't mention what, is, you know, what, what we know to be criminal. And I mean that to, intuitively so. Now remember, some things are illegal, but not immoral while other things are immoral but not illegal. For example, it's, it's, it's illegal to not wear my seatbelt, but it's not immoral. In fact, it, it chafes me that it's illegal rather than for me to make my own wise decision about a seatbelt. But anyway, it's illegal but not immoral. That, that is not something that um, we would confront you for if I caught you not wearing your seatbelt. <laughs> Unless your many fines were keeping you from feeding your family because that would be another moral issue, and uh, you get it. I might call you a fool for not wearing your seatbelt, um, or some other word. Uh, on the other hand, it is legal to get an abortion in America, but it's morally reprehensible. Every baby aborted has been murdered. So while it is legal, and the state could care less, that, that would then fall under the authority of the church to deal with. Okay, that's a church thing. But when it comes to what is both illegal and immoral, it's a different matter. You know, murder, for example, of those who are outside the womb is both illegal in America and it's immoral. And for sins of such nature, we would turn the guilty person over to the state, which God has ordained for such things, Romans chapter 13. Okay. Sins like this are not within the scope of Matthew 18. They belong to a different entity. They belong to the governing authorities. And uh, we're happy to hand them over. Okay. Here at Calvary Chapel, we will turn someone over to the state, uh, even potentially the undertaker, for any kind of sexual deviance toward a child. Okay. And we will press as many charges as we can against the offender. Okay. We intentionally have made this a dangerous place for people to commit those kinds of crimes. Okay. I pity the presumptuous fool that is caught here doing that. Amen, mom and dads. Um, any kind of unwelcome or, or, or coercive sexual misconduct to an adult will be turned over to the authorities, physical abuse. Um, I could go on. I think you guys get the point. Any other major thing that the scriptures define as immoral and as illegal will be handed over to the state. We will call the police because it would be immoral and illegal for us to conceal that matter. 
All right, and we're not going to sin on your account. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 18. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is saying that whatever the church here on earth, whenever rather the church here on earth, acts in a judicial capacity in regard to unrepentant sin, as it follows his instruction, the very thing is recognized in heaven. Don't misunderstand that. The church collectively, I'm not talking high church, I'm not talking me and the elders, we have the keys. (laughs) So let me repeat that. Jesus is saying that whenever the church here on earth acts in a judicial capacity in regard to unrepentant sin, as it follows his instruction, the very thing is recognized in heaven. What is bound on earth, that is the decision made here on earth, according to his word, is bound in heaven. Jesus will recognize and support the decision of the church. He will honor it. If the church excludes someone because of unrepentant sin, he will exclude them. That's what the text is saying. If the congregation restores someone to the fellowship through repentance, Jesus restores his fellowship with them as well. Do you see now the danger of exclusion? They're being removed from the benefits of God's church. They're being removed from fellowship with God. So Jesus repeats himself in another way, verse 19 through 20. He says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. It's very important that these two verses be held in the whole context, lest we have the confusion of that wife reading her husband's text. These promises belong to what Jesus has been talking about in the context of restoration and and exclusion. Two witnesses have enough delegated authority from Christ to restore a repentant believer to fellowship and to exclude an unrepentant believer from the fellowship, provided they abide by Christ's instruction. If they do so, the Father, Jesus says, will grant the binding and the loosing, verse 18. And the Father will do this because his Son is in their midst. He is, he's granting authority to it. He's validating it in his church. Why would he do that? Well, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Boy, we bear some responsibility, don't we? We better get our act together. Now, verse 20 is often isolated and then yanked out of a judicial context, and it's placed in in other contexts. People frequently quote this verse to mean that wherever two or more believers are gathered together, it, it is equivalent to the church itself. To have church, you just need two or three people. Well, if, if this were the book of Proverbs, where many verses are independent of the verses surrounding it, I could possibly agree, but this is not the book of Proverbs. And this verse is actually dependent on everything else surrounding it. It's not independent. Verse 19 through 20 reassured the decision, that reassured the decision that is made through the protocol that Jesus gave regarding the ministry of restoration in verse 15 through 18. You see, the word again in verse 19 connects the thought to the preceding discussion, and the word for in verse 20 concludes the thought of verse 19. You understand? This is all connected. It all goes back and pours back into what Jesus has been talking about. Now, it is true that where two or more believers are gathered, you can have 
Christian fellowship, you can have prayer, you can have worship, even discipleship, but that is not to be confused with what the local church is as the New Testament defines it. How many guys know who Alistair Begg is? Scottish preacher. Okay, well, years ago, uh, when I was, I was young in the Lord, um, I was a roofing, so it would have been like 2002 in Boise. He, he did a, a series on uh, what is the church. It's still in his teaching archive. I went and looked it up. Uh, if you're interested in what the church is and what the church is not, it's, it's nature, purpose, function, design, government. He does a fabulous job. Uh, that's not my course of study here this morning, but you could listen to that on your way home from church, uh, especially some of you that live far, far away. But for now, if we're going to define the church, we need to use the appropriate passages of Scripture to do that. Amen? Okay. Here in this passage, we could say Jesus is giving instruction regarding a function of the church, but he's not providing a definition of the church. So there we have the, the, the basic protocol for confronting an unrepentant believer among the laity for the sake of restoration, and then along with the steps to take if they refuse to repent. If you have any questions about what I've talked about thus far, uh, please email me. You can talk to me. I always encourage people to feed me, okay? I can talk scripture so much better when I'm eating a hamburger or something. (laughs) 